Welcome to the Daily Office Lectionary. I'm Father Reed. This week, we are going to begin the week by looking at Trinity Sunday, and we will have scriptures from what we call Proper Six. Those scriptures are posted, and you can see what they are from Sunday to Saturday. And But notice that there are two sets of scriptures for Trinity Sunday. Now, what is Trinity Sunday? Trinity Sunday is the first Sunday after Pentecost. Now, remember last week we celebrated Pentecost. Pentecost is celebrated. It's a major feast in the church liturgical calendar. It's a major feast, and it's celebrated 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. On Pentecost Day, we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. A week later, we have the first Sunday after Pentecost. And what will happen throughout the summer is the second Sunday after Pentecost, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh. Now, where the proper comes in, that tells us which scriptures we are going to use for that week. So we are going to use proper six. And we're celebrating the first Sunday after Pentecost. Now, the Sunday for the first Sunday after Pentecost is called Trinity Sunday. Trinity Sunday is a celebration of the Holy Trinity. Now, the Holy Trinity is a phenomenally important aspect of Christian theology, but way beyond what we're trying to do here in this uh, daily lectionary um, program. We're simply trying to get you and me to look at the Scriptures, to read the Scriptures, to be prayerful, and perhaps even study the Scriptures. But the study of the theology of the Holy Trinity is an extraordinarily important aspect of Christian theology because it is the only religion in the world that recognizes the Holy Trinity. That is, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons in one God. One substance, which is God. And three persons. So, if you look at your post, you'll see Eve of Trinity Sunday, and I want to focus on Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. There's the Holy Trinity right there. I kneel before the Father, the power through the Spirit, and Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. There's the Father, there's the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are not the same person. They are different persons, but they are co-equal. There is not one greater than the other. They do different functions in the Godhead. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know that this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Boy, that is my prayer for all of us, that we'd all be filled with the fullness of God and it takes the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit actively working to make that happen. On Trinity Sunday, we have three scriptures. Job 38 now, what's going on in Job 38? If you remember, this is finally the response of God after Job and his three friends' musings about how terrible it is that Job has been infiltrated with all these horrible things that have happened to him. The Lord answered Job out of the storm, verse 1. 
He said, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. So God speaks to Job. And we go to chapter 42, 1 through 5. And Job responds, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you will answer me. My ears have heard of you. Mine eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So we had this fantastic encounter with God and Job in chapter 38. God speaks to him and then Job responds in chapter 42. Revelation 19, Revelation being the last book of the Bible. Chapter 19 is a great book, great chapter. 19, 4 to 16, let's see what that says. So we have God speaking Job, Revelation 19, 4 to 16, as you see in your post. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. They cried, Amen, Alleluia. Praise our God and all his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. And then, verse 9, blessed are those who invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, the Lamb is Jesus. Look at verse 11. I love verse 11. Following. I saw heaven open before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one but he himself knows. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Remember John chapter 1. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He rules with an iron scepter. And on his robe and his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They're obviously talking about Jesus. And then finally we go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, 29 to 34. John chapter 1, 29 to 34. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 33. The man on whom you see the Spirit come down, the Spirit come down, and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen him and testified that this is the Lamb of God. I saw the Spirit descend on him from heaven, and a dove remain on him. Verse 32. And so we have in Job 38, we have... God speaking in Revelation 19, we see this awesome presence of Jesus glorified. And in John chapter 1, as he begins his ministry, we see the Spirit of God working and coming down on Jesus. And he testifies that he is the Son of God, the Lamb of God. So we see this awesome power between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Trinity Sunday is a wonderful Sunday, and the theology behind it is just wonderfully important and significant, and we see it in the Scriptures. Now, we don't see the name of the term Trinity in the scriptures. Uh, that's another story how that came to be. Now look at the posts that we have given you in terms of list, uh, listing the scriptures for this coming week. We have Numbers 9, Numbers 11, Numbers 12 and 13, the book of Numbers, the fourth book of the Old Testament, the fourth book of the Bible. Then we go into Romans, the fantastically great Romans. Some consider that Paul's best greatest writing. And then we continue in Matthew 17, 18, and 19. All right, 
Let's go to Numbers chapter 9. We are in the what we call the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Numbers chapter 9, 15 to 23. We have the cloud above the tabernacle. All right, so what's going on here is very much like uh, Exodus. Things are happening. We see a mirror of this in Exodus and Numbers. And what you're doing here, uh, you actually could start in Numbers 6, 22 to 27. That's uh, a wonderful text if you don't know it. That's the priestly blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you, verse 24. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And so that's a beautiful, beautiful prayer. And uh, you might know it. If you don't know it, uh, it's a beautiful prayer. And uh, you may want to note that in your Bible. So what we find in chapter 9 and 11, we find God working with the Israelites and dealing with them after their escape from Egypt and how God is going to take care of them. We have quail from the Lord in chapter 11. We have quail from the Lord in chapter 11, and we have how God is going to help Moses with all of these people. What does he say in verse 14? I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. And so the Lord said to Moses in 16, bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting, which they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take the spirit that is on you and put it, the spirit on them. They will help you carry the burden of the people so that you will not have to carry it alone. So the spirit of God comes down, even in the Old Testament, and begins to work in a very powerful way. Chapter 11 is a wonderful text. Please enjoy it. In chapter 12, we have Miriam and Aaron opposing Moses. Moses was a very humble man, verse 3, more humble than anyone else on the earth. And he was a very powerful man. But the anger of the Lord burned against them because they turned against him. They turned against him. And um, Miriam and Aaron had some problems. And the anger of the Lord burned against them in verse 9. And the cloud lifted from above the tent. And there stood Miriam, leprous like snow. The judgment of God. Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had leprosy. And he said to Moses, Please, my Lord, do not hold this against us, the sin we have so foolishly committed. Do not let her be like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with its flesh half eaten away. The Moses cried out to the Lord, Lord, please heal her. The Lord replied to Moses, If her father had spit in her face, would she have not been a disgrace for seven days? Confine her outside the camp for seven days, and she can be brought back. So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on until she was brought back. And so sinning against the Lord is a very serious offense. What I love about reading in the Old Testament is how God deals with people who love him and people that turn against him and do not trust him and do not obey him. In chapter 13, we see them entering Canaan, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelites. Now, he's going to give them this land, but they're going to explore it from the 12 tribes. They're going to have uh, one from each tribe go out and explore the land and give a response to that. So in the second half of chapter 13, they are going to respond to the word of the Lord. And Caleb, in verse 30, says, 
he silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. The other one said, no, we can't do it. They're too big. They're too great. They're too powerful. The cities are fortified. They are very large, verse 28. We can't take this land. We can't go in. Now, God had already promised it. All they had to do was believe and do what God says and it would be theirs. But the men who had gone up with him said, verse 31, we can't attack these people. They are stronger than we. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. The land we explored devours those living in it. And so they gave a bad report. And guess what happened? The people of the community in verse chapter uh, 14, verse 1, raised their voices and wept aloud, and they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And they began to turn against the Lord. And the whole assembly talked about stoning them in verse 10. This is a horrible thing that's happening in their land. Well, the Lord moves against them. And they wander in the desert for 40 years until they all die out. But those people that believe were able to go into the promised land. Nevertheless, verse 21 as surely as I live, and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the earth, not one of those men who saw my glory and miraculous signs I performed in Egypt, all the things he had done for them, and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to the forefathers. No one who treated me with contempt will ever see it. But Caleb gets to see it because he trusted in the Lord. And Joshua gets to see it because he trusted in the Lord. And so, ladies and gentlemen, when we trust in the Lord, there are blessings. When we fear the Lord and keep his commandments, as we saw last week in um, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, there are blessings. But if we do not trust the Lord, if we turn against him, if we do not believe, if we do not trust in him, there are problems. And so the beauty of numbers is we see what happens when things go well and the people believe God and when things do not. As I said earlier, one of the great books in the entire Bible is the book of Romans. Many books and commentaries have been written on the subject. Some believe that this is Paul's greatest work. And so we begin with Romans. Romans chapter 1, 1 to 15, which is in your post. And you see the beginning of Romans. And he says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because of the power, it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And at the end, he says, the righteous, verse 17, the end of verse 17, the righteous will live by faith. Now, verses 18 through 32 tell us what's going to happen if you do not believe. Tell us what's going to happen if you do not trust in the Lord, if you do not put the Lord first. He says in verse 18, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but it's quite shocking, and I'm guessing most of you have read this. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of man who, present, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. God brings his truth, and we are to accept it, not suppress it. And we suppress it by our wickedness. And then he just has this extraordinary litany of sin against God. I hope that you'll enjoy it. Go to chapter 2, verse 5. 
But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. I can't say it any better than that, folks. To those who persist by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal light, life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. And he says in verse 11, God does not show favoritism. That he does not show favoritism. And so, at the second half of Romans chapter 1, he talks about the problem of sin and the consequences of sin. Then in chapter 2, he talks about judgment. And he shares with us what it means to live righteously and how we're going to live righteously and the benefits of righteousness versus unrighteousness. Okay? And so, it is important to deal with the law in the latter half of chapter 2. Look at verse 28 and 29. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is in one inwardly. See, God is concerned about the inward part, not the outward part as much. It's what's going on in the inside of your soul that he's interested in. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. We want the action of the Holy Spirit. Remember Galatians 5 last week. The movement of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5. Being led by the Spirit of God in Galatians 5. In Romans, he picks up that same theme. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. And so we are called to honor the Lord and to follow him. In chapter 3, he lists the fact that everybody is under sin in verse 9. He says, there is no one righteous, no, not one. Verse 10. No one understands. No one seeks God. Verse 11. All have turned away. They've become worthless. There's no one who does good. Not even one. And that includes all of us. Remember what I said in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. If there's no fear of God, that's a serious problem. You want to fear the Lord and keep his commandments. This sums up the whole duty of man. He says in verse 20, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. What does that mean? The law, remember Exodus chapter 20, the law gives us God's commandments and tells us what is right or wrong. We become conscious of our sin, but we cannot keep the law because of our sin. The law cannot save us. Christ is the only one that can save us. Christ is the only one that can make us righteous. Listen to Christ, turn to Christ. Speaking of Christ, let's look at Matthew 17. And so what our Gospels are about in our lectionary work is this work of Jesus and how he is the one that saves us. He is our sanctification. He is our salvation. Remember, we looked at the transfiguration last week. Let us look at what Christ has done. We, hear the, we see the healing of an epileptic boy, and God miraculously heals him through Christ. We see the temple tax at the end of chapter 17, this miraculous ability to pay the tax through this fish. Kind of crazy, actually. In chapter 18, the greatest, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The smartest one, the best-looking one, the fastest one, the one that's got the right last name, the one that's got the most possessions? Nope, that's not what Jesus says. What does he say? Verse 2. 
He calls a little child and he stands by, has him stand by them. He says, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a child like this in my name welcomes me. There you have it. And then he, began, he goes on to tell you about how to treat children and how uh, to um, teach the little ones and how to make sure that they do not uh, wander off in the faith. But it's, our, it's so important for us to teach them and to teach them the truth that we contain in, or contained in Christ. The parable of the lost sheep, how the shepherd leaves the sheep and cares for the one that's lost. Remember the 99, the 99 are saved. He goes and, and gets the lost one. That's what Jesus does for us. He comes and he saves us. He comes and rescues us. The brother that sins against you, how many times, how often should we forgive? It's a great question. How often? Seven times? Three times? How many times do you think you and I should forgive people? Well, Jesus says, 70 times seven. And then he offers what is what I think is one of the best parables in the Bible, the parable of the unmerciful servant, the person that was forgiven from a tremendous debt completely and then has someone that owes him something and does not forgive his debt. So you and I have been forgiven a tremendous debt. Enjoy that scripture. We need to offer forgiveness to and for others when they ask us for forgiveness. We ask forgiveness from God and we receive it from him. And he forgives us absolutely. We need to extend that same thing. So Christian people should be very, very forgiving people and very loving people. Finally, in chapter 19, the, the idea of divorce. Now, what does God regard as marriage? When Jesus had finished these sayings, in verse 1, he left Galilee, went to the region of Judea, to the other, Judea to the other side of the Jordan, large crowds followed him. You bet they were, large crowds. They were very impressed by what he was doing. Some Pharisees came to test him, so they did not have good intentions. Is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And then Jesus says, haven't you read at the beginning, God made them male and female? Okay, Genesis 1. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, Genesis 2. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Moses permitted you to divorce your wife because your hearts were hard, verse 8. But this is not the way it was from the beginning. He says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another commits adultery. It's a strong teaching, folks. It's a strong teaching. And so we hear the teaching of Jesus. We hear the miracles of Jesus. We hear the tete-a-tete that he has with those that oppose him. We hear the parable, the great parable of the unmerciful servant. We are called to be faithful to ask forgiveness. We hear, we hear and see the healing of the ep epileptic boy. As you journey through the book of Romans, I hope you enjoy Romans. It's just always wonderful to read and reread. And then, of course, the book of Numbers, which tells you the way we are. It's a great example of the people of Israel who are sometimes very appreciative of what God does and sometimes not very much at all. So enjoy your reading. We begin with Trinity Sunday as we praise and thank God for the Holy Trinity. And then we work through as we are in the second half of our season, the season of Pentecost. We'll continue our journey in the season of Pentecost next week. 
God bless you and have a wonderful week of study, prayer, and reflection. Bye-bye.